0: Good morning, church family. Um, So before I get started in uh, today's passage, I did want to just go ahead and briefly address kind of some updates and and let you know kind of where we are at as an elder team in terms of uh, our discussions regarding the resumption of gatherings. Um, So obviously there are a lot of variables at play right now, and um, we're going to have to continue to remain flexible. So any, you know, plans that we make are obviously being written in pencil. Uh, But there are a few things that I want to uh, just um, point out and make a note of. First of all, uh, we're committed to honoring our our governing authorities and loving our neighbors. That's a commitment of ours going forward. Uh, And we're also committed to gathering together soon because this, what we're doing here, is not an adequate replacement for the assembling of the church of the local church uh, in a specific place in the same room. So we're thankful for this, but we also recognize that this falls far short of of what God's intention is. But we also recognize that there are seasons um, that God providentially ordains in which we're not able to assemble. We're in the midst of one of those seasons, but we place a high priority on uh, resuming being able to assemble as soon as is reasonably. Uh, possible. And so uh, there's, a, there's a fine line that we've got to balance between uh, loving our neighbor and honoring our governing authorities and yet taking seriously God's uh, call in Hebrews 10 to not forsake the assembling uh, together. And so um, another thing that, that I want to reiterate is that we're going to um, do whatever we do. We're going to do so by honoring one another and clothing ourselves in humility and not looking in judgment on those who disagree with us. That's not an easy thing to do. Our instant reaction is to want to get defensive when somebody else has a different viewpoint. Um, But we've got to recognize that we're brothers and sisters in Christ and that there's going to be a wide array of opinions on how best to approach the resumption of of corporate gatherings uh, in the midst of a pandemic. So some may be uncomfortable attending gatherings, even if we do resume gathering. And so we, uh, have a responsibility to love and support those individuals who decide to stay at home, um, whether out of conviction or for health reasons. Um, there, we're going to have to, uh, you know, do some things even when we do resume gathering that may be uncomfortable. You know, there, there may be, you know, social distancing that still continues to be in place and it's not going to feel the same, uh, you know, as it did before. It's going to be a while before uh, there's any resemblance of, you know, what we're used to, uh, to be quite honest with you. Um, but so whether you're in favor of, you know, staying indoors until we have a vaccine, or you think this is all a bunch of big government overreach, uh, the unity of the church comes first. That's what's most important. Uh, This world is not our home and the United States is not an eternal kingdom. Um, I love this nation, uh, as do all of us. Uh, but this nation is not going to last forever. Um, I really want us to remember Philippians two, one to four. Paul is, writing to the Church of Philippi, and he says, uh, If there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of of others. Um, That is a passage that we prayed over our church when we launched Pillar DC last summer, and it's one that we ought to continue to pray over our church, especially uh, in light of our present circumstances. So uh, I just encourage you to to, to do that. Um, We're looking, just practically, we're looking at a number of options in the event that we're not able to gather at Jefferson this summer. Uh, We don't know what's going to happen with that, but there's a a likelihood that we won't be able to gather at Jefferson this summer. And so we're looking at options, including gathering in northern Virginia, uh, maybe at a a temporary space or uh, possibly uh, gathering at at a different time on Sunday or maybe even a different day of the week. Uh, And we're also considering gatherings in homes. So. Uh, No matter what, we will continue to put services online uh, for those who need to remain home, and we're going to be doing that for the foreseeable future. Um, I'd like to ask you to just be praying for us. Pray for the elders. Pray as we make these uh, decisions. They're not easy decisions. Uh, We've been wrestling a lot with them. We've been praying constantly, so we would covet your prayers for us. Uh, And I'm thankful that uh, even if it's months before we're able to all assemble again as a church, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church. Uh, we have that promise in Scripture. And we know that God is sovereign, that He's good, and that He's in control. So uh, that's just an update I wanted to provide you. Uh, so let's, uh, let's go ahead and jump into the, the message for today. So last week, Thomas introduced us to Jacob and Esau. Uh, they were the twin sons of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And uh, while Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was pregnant with Jacob and Esau in the womb, the Lord revealed to Rebecca that he uh, he had chosen Jacob over Esau to be the son of blessing, to be the one um, that uh, would be chosen to be the people of God, the one through whom all the nations would be blessed. So Jacob's descendants would be God's people. Um, And uh, so, Jacob and Esau were born, but despite the fact that the Lord revealed that to Rebekah, Isaac, um, their father, favored Esau. And so, uh, you know, once they got older uh, and it was time for Isaac to give the blessing uh, to his sons, Isaac wanted to give the blessing to Esau, uh, but Jacob and Rebekah in Genesis 27 concocted this plan to deceive Isaac into blessing uh, Jacob instead. So, Isaac was blind, uh, so, you know, so it's a long story, but Jacob disguises himself, goes in, tricks, tricks his father into thinking that he is Esau, and uh, Isaac ends up blessing Jacob over Esau. As a result, Esau is furious with Jacob, he and he vows to kill him. So uh, Rebekah, their mother, uh, overhears Esau's plots, and Rebecca warns Jacob and asks Isaac to send Jacob away from Beersheba, where they lived, to Haran, where her father's house was, so that Jacob could find a wife. And so that's kind of where we're picking up the story. Uh, Jacob is in the midst of this 550 mile solo journey to Haran, um, uh, leaving Beersheba. And that's where we're going to pick up in Genesis 28. And we're going to start in verse 10. So let's read the first couple of verses here. It says that Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set, taking one of the stones of the place he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. So that first little sentence in this passage, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. There's more there than meets the eye. It's kind of almost one of those verses that you could just overlook and go, okay, let's get to the action here. Uh, but we actually learn a lot about what's happening here. Um, By by leaving Beersheba, Jacob is leaving the very land and inheritance he had wanted so badly. You got to think about the situation he's in. Right now, he's a fugitive. He thought he had gotten over on Esau, but now it's Esau who's actually staying behind in the land that Jacob wanted so badly, and it's Jacob who's having to flee, not even knowing if he's ever going to be able to Return. So for all his scheming and conniving, it may end up turning out to be nothing. And not only that, but now Jacob is alone. I and mean, his brother hates him. His father certainly was not pleased with him. And really, his mom is the only one in his corner. You gotta love a mother's love, right? Like no matter how bad your boy gets, like mom's always going to be like, oh, he's such a sweet boy. It's probably what she thought about Jacob. I mean, so Jacob is alone. Uh, he has left everything he's ever ever known. He's uh, he's in the middle of nowhere. He's never been uh, you know in this place before, and he's afraid. I mean, as we just continue to read, the suspense continues to grow. He gets to verse eleven. He comes to a certain place, uh, and the sun begins to set. It's beginning to get dark, and so there's all sorts of dangers. There's you know the potential for wild animals uh, to come and attack him, or maybe. You know, what if Esau is following him? What if Esau has been following him and stalking him and comes upon him in the night? Or what if the inhabitants of the land that he's spending the night in think that, you know, he's hostile and and they come and they're hostile towards him? He's alone. He's afraid. And then if all that weren't enough, something even more frightening happens. God shows up. And remember, Jacob isn't exactly a great guy. His name literally means deceiver, and he lived up to his name's sake. The blessing and favor he had wanted so badly and that he had schemed to get now seemed to be in jeopardy, and now he's confronted by God. I mean, remember, uh, you know, and God confronts him. When God confronts him, he says, I am, in verse 13, he says, I am the, the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The God of Isaac, the same Isaac that he just deceived, the same Isaac that he just tricked, the same God of whose name he just took in vain when he he swore and said that it was God who gave him the success while hunting in the field. I mean, what must have been going through Jacob's mind at this point? Is God angry with me? Has he come to punish me? Has God come to pay me back for what I've done to my father? And my brother? Jacob is at a real crisis point in his life here. He's alone, afraid, and estranged from God. Can you relate? Have you ever been there yourself? If we're honest, all of God's people have. The Psalms are especially helpful in giving expression to this. Psalm 42, 9 The psalmist writes, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemies? David writes in Psalm 142, 4, look to the right and see. No one stands up for me. There is no refuge for me. No one cares about me. Or even think about the people of Israel Uh, a few hundred years later in the wilderness, or uh, when the people of Israel were in exile in Babylon. They asked these same questions and wrestled with the same fears as they waited for years to get into the promised land. All of us have crisis points in our lives, times where we feel alone, afraid, or estranged by God, where God seems distant and His promises seem far away. And the rest of this passage unfolds what God reveals about himself to Jacob. In times of crisis, this is what God wants his people to know about him. While times of crisis and hardship are difficult, uh, one of the things that we see over and over again in scripture is that God meets us when we're desperate. I want to show you three things God reveals to Jacob about who he is and what he's like, uh, especially... Uh, what he's like toward us in the midst of crisis moments in our life, in the midst of times when we feel alone, afraid, or estranged from God, or like God is distant. Um, So let's pick up and let's read the rest of the chapter here to see what happens next as God encounters Jacob in this uh, very vulnerable position that he's in. I'll start in verse 13. It says, Behold, the Lord stood above it, Above the ladder descending from heaven and uh, to the earth. The Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. Let me pray real quick. God, I thank you for your word. Um, Please help me now as I uh, teach for the next few minutes. Uh, Help me to rightly divide the word of truth. God, I am a weak vessel apart from you. I can do nothing. Um, God, my opinions can't uh, help anybody. Only your word is mighty to save. Only your word, uh, God, can build us up. Uh, And so I pray that, um, God, as your word is proclaimed, as your word is read, As it's taught that, God, you would help all of us to listen to what you have to say, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things in your word. And I pray for anyone that's not born again, for anyone who uh, is truly estranged from you, uh, who is separated from you right now in their sin, that today that they would see how gracious you are, how steadfast in love you are, how firm your promises are, how how much you desire to to bring people into your family from every tribe and tongue and nation. God, I pray that people would see your goodness and your worthiness and that, God, people would call upon your name. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So when God's people feel alone, afraid, or estranged from God, we should remember, first of all, that God is gracious toward his people. I mean... Just look at how kind God is to this deceiver here in this passage. First, just note the undeserving character of Jacob. Jacob was not looking for God. God initiated this entire encounter. Uh, I like how Victor Hamilton, a commentator um, on the book of Genesis, put it. He said, Jacob's expectations of encountering Yahweh somewhere between Beersheba and Haran were about as great as Saul's expectation of meeting Christ somewhere between Jerusalem and Damascus. In other words, he was not expecting it at all. He didn't see this coming. I mean, Jacob doesn't even know God to this point. God has appeared to Abraham and to Isaac, his father and grandfather, but not to Jacob. Jacob has heard stories about God. He probably could have talked about God, but Jacob has never encountered God and entered into a relationship with him. I believe some of you may be in a similar spot today. Like Jacob, you've been living off of your parents' faith. You may have even said something or you may say something like, well, I was born a Christian. But friends, this is impossible. You can't be born a Christian. Jesus says, if anyone wants to enter the kingdom of God, you must be born again. So we're we're not born into Christianity and we're not born into a relationship with God. Just like Jacob here, we each must have an encounter with God. We must come to know him and have a relationship with him personally and intimately. It's not about a a set of religious rituals and and a set of religious laws that we just kind of adopt from our culture or from our family. This is about a personal relationship with the living God. Not only was Jacob not looking for God, but Jacob did not deserve God's blessing. In fact, he deserved the opposite. I mean, he's, again, like I said earlier, he took the Lord's name in vain. In chapter 7, verse 20, to deceive his father. Um, he's uh, stolen uh, the birthright from his brother. Uh, he's not a great guy. He's a liar. He's a, he's a cheater. Uh, he's a thief. And this is the guy that God chose to establish a relationship with. So, I mean, also just note the unexpected grace of God towards this undeserving character, Jacob. God does not punish Jacob. In fact, he does the opposite. He blesses him. Why? Well, it's because God is merciful. That's really the only explanation. You know, God is so often characterized as either an, an angry man who's ready to fly off the handle at the slightest misstep, or like a doting grandmother who will let you do whatever you want and just wants to smother you with smooches but most of these are distortions of who God actually is. They're distortions of the of how God reveals himself to us in the Bible and in the person of Jesus Christ. They miss the mark. Do you know God? I don't mean your idea of God or your caricature of God. I mean do you really know God, the God of scripture? He's revealed himself to us in his word and he's revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. It's not enough just to know about Him. It's not enough to know of Him what our parents have told us about Him. Have you encountered Him? Have you met Him? God is holy, holy, holy. His glory shines brighter than a billion suns. Have you ever tried to look at the sun for even one second? I mean, it's painful, right? We can't do it. There's no way we can look at the sun. And God is is more glorious and His glory is brighter than a billion suns. He's so pure and glorious and awesome, we can't look at Him and live. He is pure and He hates wrongdoing and deceit. He is just and He must punish sin. It is right for Him to do so. Any Jacob who finds himself standing before Yahweh stands no chance. And yet... Psalm 103, 11 says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love toward those who fear Him. So as holy as God is, as, as unfathomable as His greatness is, yet even just as unfathomable is His mercy, is His steadfast love. Romans five twenty one says, Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God's very nature is to extend grace and love because it only serves to make his glory shine brighter. Because as God extends grace to undeserving sinners, he's displaying his glorious nature. He's being himself. It's it's natural. He, he doesn't have to be provoked to do it, he doesn't have to be convinced to do it. Your obedience does not evoke more mercy from God, it doesn't evoke God's favor. God is just naturally predisposed to dispense mercy. In grace. He doesn't need to be provoked to do so. The, in fact, the Bible says he's uh, he's long suffering. He's slow to anger. It says in Exodus 34, 6, he needs to be provoked to wrath. It takes a lot to make God angry. Do you know him? You know, the reason that God can do this, the reason that he can extend grace and mercy towards sinners like us is because In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for our sins. Have you recognized, first of all, uh, just that like Jacob, you also are a pitiful sinner that cannot earn good standing with God? Have you recognized that? And then secondly, have you recognized that despite the fact that that's true, that God truly is merciful and gracious and he wants to extend his steadfast love and mercy towards you? You know, Jacob tried with all of his might to attain the blessing with effort. But what he learned here is that it's only received by grace. God must give it. As hard as Jacob tried, at the end of the day, he was left with nothing and he was a fugitive fleeing the land that he had tried so hard to get. It must be received by grace. So when God's people feel alone, afraid, and abandoned, we should remember that God is gracious toward his people. We should also remember that God will never leave his people. If you were to ask me the main idea of this passage, I say that it's God will be with his people wherever they go. God will be with his people wherever they go. This is clearly the dominant note. Uh, there's four times in this passage where you kind of see this emphasized. First of all, there's the ladder in verse 12, connecting heaven and earth. And that's really, you know, like showing us that that God is active and involved in the world. He's he's not some far off, distant God. Uh, And then in verse 15, God says to Jacob, I will be with you wherever you go. And then in verse 16, Jacob says, surely the Lord is in this place. And, And then in verse 19, Um, Jacob names the place Bethel, which means house of God or the place where God dwells. So you see how like, this is very clearly the theme of this passage. It comes up over and over and over again, that God is present with Jacob there. God is dwelling on the earth. His presence is here. He is not like a divine watchmaker who created the earth and then went off to do other things. And he's kind of just letting things run their course. He's intricately involved in our lives, and he wants a relationship with his people. How comforting it must have been for Jacob to hear that. I will be with you. I will not leave you until I have done what I've promised. That one promise that God will be with him seals all the other promises. Jacob may be leaving the promised land, and he may not even be married yet, but God guarantees his return and his future of descendants by the promise of his presence. The presence of God in our lives secures the promises of God. I mean, like Romans 8 says, if God is for us, who can be against us? Really, what other promise do we need? If the creator of the universe, Yahweh, is with us, that's all the comfort we need. Now, maybe you'll say, well, Okay, that's great for Jacob, but how, how do you know if God is with you or not? I venture to say that most of you haven't had God appear to you in the middle of the night and speak to you in such a spectacular fashion like this. Neither have I. So, uh, so how does this passage apply to us today? Well, this vision that God gave Jacob was just a foreshadowing of an even greater event that was going to take place. Listen to the words of Jesus in John chapter one, verses forty seven to fifty one. Um, Jesus here is um, talking to he's calling Nathaniel, who's going to end up being one of his twelve disciples, and this is Jesus upon meeting Nathaniel. It says that Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. The vision that God gave Jacob was not just for Jacob. God would not just come to his people in a dream or in a temple. God became flesh and dwelt among us in the person of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 2 says that Jesus... Was born Emmanuel, God with us, which brings a, a whole new, <laughs> a whole new understanding here to what we're reading in Genesis chapter twenty-eight. Jacob couldn't have even began to fathom just how amazing this truly would be. Colossians two nine says that in Him, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells bodily. Jesus, in John chapter one, is identifying Himself as the bridge, as the mediator, as the one that connects heaven and earth, as uh, the mediator between God and man, as the way to God. He says in John fourteen six, "I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." It's through Jesus' death on the cross for our sins his resurrection from the dead, and then his ascension into heaven where he now sits at the right hand of God, that he has gained victory over sin and over death, making a way for us to be able to be reconciled with God. That's why the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, he's the ladder that Jacob saw here in Genesis chapter 28. Jacob didn't fully understand how it was that God could dwell with sinful man, but this, but Jesus kind of peels back the curtain for us in John chapter one and shows us. Jesus himself brought heaven to earth. Jesus himself ushered in the kingdom of God. He is the way to a new relationship with God, and he is the only way to a new and restored relationship with God. But it doesn't just stop there, because when Jesus ascended into heaven, right before he, right before he died on the cross, he told the disciples in John 16, he said, I'm going away, and you'll be sorrowful, but it's actually good for you that I go away it's to your advantage that I go away for if I go away then I can send the helper to you so when Jesus ascended into heaven he poured out his holy spirit upon Christians upon the church at Pentecost and so now God does not just dwell with us he's not just uh, in the person of Christ in the flesh walking amongst us on earth but he actually is dwells in us by his spirit forgiveness of sin eternal life and the promise of God's presence with us forever. All of those things are a free gift received by faith in Jesus Christ alone. We place our faith in Jesus Christ. We receive those gifts. We receive the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't just, he's not just with you always. He actually dwells within you by his spirit. And not only do believers have God's promise of his abiding presence with us now, but we have a glorious future to look to. Revelation 21, 3 gives us a glimpse where it says that the dwelling place of God is with man. The new Jerusalem is coming out, uh, is coming down. And, and, and the, the Apostle John says, the dwelling, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. One day when Jesus returns to make all things new, the new heavens and the new earth are established. We will be in the very presence of God. We will look him in the face. We will be in the presence of his glory. And that future is guaranteed. It's what God wants. He doesn't give it reluctantly. The the point of our salvation is that we would know God. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ, the one whom you have sent. That's the whole point. God has sent Christ to reconcile people to himself, to have a relationship with us. And we see this all the way from Genesis to Revelation. God will never leave his people. It's why, it's what he created us for. It's why he saved us. Now the trouble is that oftentimes even Christians have difficulty believing God is with them. And God knows this. And that's why the Bible is flooded with reminders from God to his people that he is with us. You know, sometimes it's outward circumstances that can cause us to question whether or not God is with us. We have this tendency to subconsciously believe that if God is really with us, then things will go well and that they'll go our way. And when they don't, it's like we 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 begin to to question, we begin to doubt, we begin to wonder is God really with us? Have I done something wrong? Is God going to forsake me? We get confused. I think a lot of times we equate suffering with God, like stiff arming us. Um, I don't know what you're going through right now. Maybe it's unemployment. God, not answering your prayers for a job. Maybe it's singleness. You've been waiting to be married and you've longed and desired for, for a companion for years and it still hasn't happened. Maybe it's like Thomas talked about last week. Maybe it's barrenness. You've been desiring children of your own and, you um, you you know, you continue to be unable to conceive. Maybe it's discord and fighting in the home or within your family and uh, try as you might to reconcile. It just doesn't seem to be getting better. Other times, it's not outward circumstances, but it's our inward sin that can cause us to question if God is with us. Um, Dane Ortland uh, wrote a book, uh, that just came out recently called Gentle and Lowly: The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. Uh, I would highly, highly commend this book to you. Um, but uh, in in the book he says in one place, he says, we have a chronic tendency to function out of a subtle belief that our obedience strengthens the love of God. And it's true. Another way to put that is that we have a tendency to subtly believe, that our failure to keep the law causes God to abandon us. Here's kind of a way to, um, a kind of a litmus test to see whether or not maybe you, you do this sometimes. You know, If you feel loved by God on days when you wake up on time, you have your quiet time, you pray, you listen to worship music on the way to work, but you feel far from God on days when you miss your alarm and you snap at your wife and you kick the dog. That's what's happening. You're basing the way that you see God's disposition towards you off of your own performance spiritually. And that's anti-gospel. Whether it's outward circumstances or inward sin causing doubt of God's presence, Genesis 28 is such a powerful reminder because it reveals God's heart and His desire. He wants a relationship with you. It was His idea. You didn't come up with the idea. He's the initiator. He's the one that wants you. He's not going to... Uh, you know, send his son Jesus to die for you, to spill his blood for you, to adopt you into his family, only only to get tired of you and then cast you aside. I don't care what's happening in your outward circumstances. I don't care what type of sin you've been battling with or how bad it is. Your hardships are not evidence that he's forgotten you and your ongoing battle with sin will not cause him to change his mind. Jacob was a deceiver, and he didn't deserve anything from God. And Jacob was about to be in exile, and he's going to be in exile from his home for 20 years. It's going to be 20 years before he returns to Beersheba. But not once did God leave Jacob, despite his circumstances and despite his sin. Christian, even in your darkest days, God will not abandon you. And we've got to cling to that truth. I love what the Lord says in Isaiah forty nine fifteen and 16. He says to his people, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. That's an incredible promise, isn't it? So when God's people feel alone, afraid, and estranged from Him, we should remember that God is gracious towards His people. God will never leave His people. And finally, God will bless the nations through His people. Now look again at at verse 14. Uh, I want to draw your attention to uh, specifically what God promises Jacob here. Uh, He says to him, uh, Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So God's promise to bless Jacob doesn't stop with Jacob. He blessed Jacob so that Jacob and his descendants could be a blessing to the nations. God, one of the things that's just really obvious here in this text and in many of the other texts we've looked at so far this morning is that God is a missionary God. He's a sending God. He does not wait in heaven and challenge man to try and attain to his heights. Remember, humanity is dead in sin and God in his infinite grace and power comes as the rescuer we need and he takes delight in it. God is glorified in the gracious saving of sinners. It highlights his grace and love. and Jesus says in luke fifteen ten there is joy before the angels of God over even one sinner who repents like God takes delight in saving sinners. I mean like I love how this even supports like our previous point too. you know that God will never leave you like we we tend to think that God is a reluctant savior of sinners that he kind of boxed himself in with this whole gospel promise and that he goes, okay, fine. I guess I'll keep this promise. No, no, that is not the picture we get in scripture. He, it causes a party to happen in heaven when a sinner repents. It's, it's one of the most God-like things that God does to extend pardon and grace to undeserving sinners. It, it, it flows out of the very essence of who he is. God wants people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to have a relationship with Him. It brings Him great glory to bestow this kind of mercy, on people of every single skin color and every single language and every single background, no matter how sinful, no matter how dirty, no matter how many false idols they have worshiped. God loves to flex his power by rescuing people from the grips of sin. He loves to lavish his grace on undeserving people so that in turn we we look to him and we praise him with our lips. Psalm 67 says, let all the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad. And what's amazing is that the conduit through which God wants to do all of this is, is us, the church. In fact, God has given us the promise of his abiding presence, not just for our comfort, but for the purpose of this very mission. God has not just saved us for our own sake. The call to be a Christian and to follow Jesus is the call to be a fisher of men. Like that's how Jesus like invited the first disciples into a relationship with him. He said, follow me and I will teach you to be fishers of men. That's what it means to be a disciple. If you're not a fisher of men, you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. All Christians are fishers of men. It's at the very core of our identity as disciples. It's at the very core of the mission of Jesus' church. Even God's promise to be with us always that we've talked about that gives us so much comfort uh, and His promise that He'll never leave us, it's attached to this mission. Just think about the Great Commission. Do you remember the promise that is attached to the Great Commission? What does the Lord say? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. And what? And behold, I am with you always. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound a little bit like what we hear we see him saying to Jacob here? Is it any coincidence that God's God says, "Jacob, through you all the families of the earth will be blessed." And then next verse 15, "Behold, I am with you and will keep you." This is not an accident. This is all throughout scripture. God's abiding presence gives us the power for the mission of making disciples of all nations and of being a blessing to the nations. God will be with us wherever we go so that we might be empowered to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Do you realize that through the proclamation of the gospel, we actually get to to participate in the fulfillment of this promise in Genesis 28, 14, now like we actually get to play a part in seeing this covenant promise fulfilled because we are the, we are the offspring of Jacob. Every, anybody who uh, has fa- the faith of Abraham, anybody who trusts in Jesus Christ is adopted into God's family. We're a child of Abraham. We're a child of Jacob, which means that this promise applies to us. So that means that we are to be a blessing to the nations. And by proclaiming the gospel, we are bringing this promise to fulfillment. Every time you share the gospel with a co-worker, every time we send out a missionary as a church, every church that we plant, every dollar that goes towards missions, it all serves this great end of being a blessing to the nations. Don't let this pandemic turn you inward. And I mean that as a, an individual exhortation for you as a Christian, but I also mean that for us, Corporately as a church, we can't let this pandemic turn us inward. That's the temptation during a time like this is to kind of batten down the hatches and you know to preserve ourselves and let's just weather this storm and we're just going to hunker down and we're going to focus on us right now and once you know all this passes and things get better, then we'll focus on you know the nations. We'll focus on uh, you know making disciples. We'll focus on mission, guys. That's just not even remotely close to the way that God wants us to respond to this. The mission doesn't stop because we're in the midst of a pandemic. The Great Commission is not put on hold. You might be wondering, what does the Great Commission have to do with God's people feeling alone and afraid or estranged from God? Isn't that kind of how we started this? I think that much of our fear and discontentment and doubt comes because we take our eyes off of Jesus and off of his mission to be wit- for us to be witnesses, and we and we put them on ourselves. And when we're focused on what really matters, which is people from every tribe and tongue and nation hearing the gospel, it takes our eyes off of our own comparably paltry struggles. I want to read you an excerpt from Hudson Taylor's biography. He was a missionary to China. He helped start the China Inland Mission. Scores of people have come to Christ and churches have been planted as a result of his ministry um, uh, in the 1900s. Taylor says this. uh, He says, it is pretty cold weather to be living in a house without any ceilings and with very few walls and windows. But we heed these things very little. Around us are poor, dark, heathen, large cities without any missionary, populous towns without any missionary, villages without number, all without the means of grace. I do not envy the state of mind that would forget these or leave them to perish for fear of a little discomfort. May God make us faithful to him and to our work. We need to keep things in perspective. We cannot allow our own inconveniences to take our eyes off of what really matters. This world is not our home. As great as this country is and as much as I love it, it's going to pass away, but the kingdom of God will remain forever. I heard David Platt say this past week that, you know, as we think about the con- inconveniences that we face right now, you know, like there's like a short, a, a meat supply shortage. Like you might not fry in chicken breast at Safeway. Or the inconvenience of not being able to bat- gather a bunch of Christians into large air conditioned buildings. And these are inconveniences to be sure. But these inconveniences, just they're giving us just a little small taste of what everyday life is like for unreached people groups around the world. And now imagine facing all this except on steroids, a hundred times worse, in poverty, and without the gospel, without hope, without Jesus. The Joshua Project estimates that there are three billion unreached peoples in the world. The International Mission Board lists 265 million people as being a part of unreached, unengaged people groups, meaning they have zero access to the gospel and there is zero church planting activity happening amongst those people. That's over a quarter billion people. That would be like the entire population of Indonesia, which is the, which is the fourth largest country in the entire globe, having no access to, the, access to the gospel and no one trying to bring the gospel to them currently. And you just look at this map here uh, on the screen, those red zones are zones with little to no access to the gospel. There's scores of people without hope. We can't take our eyes off of what is most important to God. And what is most important to God is that those red and those yellow areas become green. And here's the reality. This is a Joshua Project map, too, from 2016. And a lot of those green areas aren't very reached as well. I mean, we've got our friends Logan and Carla Douglas in Iceland, and it's green. But I've been to Iceland myself, and you'd be hard-pressed to find even one you know, follower of Jesus just walking around on the streets. There's one Baptist church in the entire country right now, and they're laboring to plant the second one. So even amongst the green areas, there are many people who don't have much access to the gospel with very little work going on. And that's what matters to Jesus. The people from every one of those regions would call upon his name. So practically, what can you do? Well, pray. I'd encourage you to download Joshua Project's app. They have an app called Unreached People of the Day every day it just gives you an unreached people group and gives you specific things you can pray for them i mean it will humble you to see the num- the, the the sheer number of unreached peoples millions upon millions of people with nobody reaching them jesus told us to pray he said in matthew 9:38 pray earnestly to the lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest are you obeying that passage are you doing that if we are not if you're not praying for unreached people groups then you're not being obedient to this passage of scripture. We need to be praying for the nations that don't know him. We absolutely should be praying regularly for the harvest here. Yes, in DC, praying for more laborers, more churches, more openness to the gospel. But just remember, there is nobody reaching these UPGs. Uh, I Just one example uh, I looked at it, uh, on from the app is the Jot of Northwest India. There's 20 million Jots in Northwest India, 0% evangelical. They're Hindus that worship idols that cannot hear or speak. They're carved idols that sit in their homes and they can't help them and nobody's telling them about Jesus. We need to pray for laborers to be raised up and we also need to consider going. We can't just pray that God will raise up somebody else while I devote my life to serving myself, while I devote my life to trying to avoid uncomfortable situations. I'm talking about every one of us, from me, from the pastor, all the way down. We all need to be praying and going, God, do you want us to go? I mean, hey, what better time in our lives and in our history to have a radical change of plans in our life? Maybe one of the things God is doing in your life right now by disrupting all of your plans and by kind of, you know, taking your plans and just, you know, tossing them out the window Is maybe he's leading you in a completely different direction that you didn't expect. Maybe he's leading you to go to the nations. And if he is, we will equip you and we will send you. And if you're sensing that God may be doing that, I want you to talk to me. I want you to email me or I want you to email Thomas or Orion. Come and reach out to us. We want to get you equipped and we will send you and we will resource you if you sense God calling you to the nations. But what I want all of us to do is I want all of us to go home and I want us to pray tonight. I want us to pray this week. Don't just assume that, the, that you, oh, I've already prayed about that and God doesn't want me to go. Well, pray about it again. I'm going to pray about it. Jen's going to pray about it. And we're going to ask God, do you want to do something completely different? Because if you, if you want us to go, we'll go. Because we know, God, that your desire in Psalm 67:4 is that all the nations would praise you. Let all the peoples praise you, it says. We don't have to question whether that's God's will. We know it's God's will. So let me encourage you to go and to put, you know, as they say, your yes on the table. We serve an amazing God. He is with us wherever we go. He's so gracious towards us. He delights in saving us. He delights in saying, saving Jacob's wormy little deceivers. They don't deserve anything, but a good punch in the face. Like Just thinking about Jacob in this sermon, like Jacob's just the kind of guy that like, just kind of a jerk, you know? And like, look what God did with Jacob. As we're we're gonna follow Jacob's life over the next couple of weeks, and we're gonna see how God's gonna transform Jacob. Jacob's gonna grow in his knowledge of who God is. God's gonna take this immature, um, selfish person, and he's gonna use him and work through him. And he can do the same thing through you. I hope you know how gracious God is towards you, that he'll never leave you or forsake you if you're in Christ and that He wants to work in and through you to be a blessing to the nations. That's who God reveals Himself to be to Jacob and to us in Genesis 28.